If you have your scriptures with you, if you would turn to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and we will continue our uh, unfolding of the Christmas story. Last week, Pastor Orlando preached a wonderful sermon about, um, it would, should have been subtitled, Don't Give Up Till God Shows Up. It was about Zacharias and Elizabeth and uh, the perseverance that's needed in, uh, in, in life. And if, you, if you're at a point right now where you could just use an encouragement uh, in that direction, pick up a tape from him. Um, but this week we continue to build on that theme with this question. So what do you do when God does show up? And, 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 and when he shows up in a way that you thought it was going to be different. Um, let me read to you beginning with the 26th verse of the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Just a couple of verses to kind of make this transition. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. By the way, as close as we can calculate, both uh, Mary and Joseph were descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. It seems like up until this time, (laughs) there has been a readiness for this event. This is the central event. This, This initiates the central event in history. And everything up to this time has been prologue. Everything has been, if you're more musically inclined, prelude. When it says now, it means this is, this is going to be different. Because God's been in the world forever. And God has been making a people of him for himself forever. But there's something that's about to happen that, that makes all the difference in the world. God has allowed his people to hear his revelations and to act as best they could, and they still failed. Because there was this sin problem that could not be addressed without His indwelling power in the world, without Him actually coming down. Now, in the sixth month, it says, I heard a story one time about a a, a guy who was late to his his kid's little league game, and he went to every one of them, but, but he was just late getting there this time, and and so he, he got there and his kids were out, his kid was out on the field. And, and so he went down, his, play, his kid was playing first base. And, uh, and he kind of shouted over the fence to him, you know, when nothing was really happening. He said, so, so how's it going? The kid goes, okay. And the, and, the, and the guy goes, what's the score? He said, we're behind 14 to nothing. <laughs> and the dad was kind of taken back. He said, well, you don't look very disturbed. He goes, I'm not, we haven't even been up to bat yet. See, all of history, we were kind of getting behind her and behind her because we were playing defensive measures. We, we, we hadn't got up to bat with the power that could come in our lives. Now, in the sixth month, the story turns. The story turns. And, and, and the story turns in a very unique way because it starts describing God's activity, not in terms of the calendar, 
It says now in the sixth month. What does that mean? Not in the sixth month of the year. God doesn't work according to chronology. You don't have to be any more afraid in the year 2000 than you were in 1999 because God doesn't work according to the calendar. God works according to what he's doing in everybody else's life. According to the movement in the lives of his people, that's why we've got to get together. That's why we've got to know what he's doing in other places. In the sixth month, was referring to the pregnancy of Elizabeth with, the, with, with John the Baptist. In her sixth month, God, God's timing is a relationship, is a connection with what he's doing with other people. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth. Where's that? That's what everybody would say. Nazareth is not, Nazareth is this podunk town. Some of us came from podunk towns, by the way. We have a, we have a soft spot in our heart for podunk towns. But Nazareth is not named in any of the historic literature of the Old Testament. It, it's, it's of no significance. As a matter of fact, it had a bad reputation. It was talked about in the pejorative sense. You can remember in the Gospel of John. How, how they kind of sneered. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, you know when people kind of, you, you tell them where you're from and they kind of give you a shot about your hometown. Never happened? Where are you from? Orlando. Oh, Mickey's place. <laughs> a little shot, you know, a little shot about your hometown. Well, that's, that's the way that, that Nazareth had, had, this, had this reputation of being a skeptical and a stiff-necked people. You remember what happened to Jesus' ministry when he went there. There was so much unbelief. That wasn't just because he was a hometown boy. It was because Nazareth had this, had this thing. So there's no special, not Jerusalem, not, no special city here. To a virgin who was betrothed to a man named Joseph, who knew him? Nobody. And her name was Mary, who knew her? Nobody. What is happening here is that God is about to take action on a very practical lesson, not a le- level, not on an intellectual level. Did you ever notice how things get mostly done in your life, things mostly change when practical things happen, not when you know more. All of us understand that we don't do better just because we know better. Intellectual, erudite, uh, esoteric teachings have only a marginal effect. Life doesn't really change until it gets real practical and you've got to change. And this is what God is doing. He's not coming down with another teaching. God's coming down with a very practical, down and dirty kind of activity. I heard a story this week, read a story, um, true story. Uh, middle school in Oregon. And they were having a problem. This little group of girls, eighth graders, had, uh, had just gotten uh, permission from their parents, I guess there was a gang of them, to use makeup. And so they're, you know, putting this stuff all over the thing and doing a lipstick on the thing. And I don't know if this happened to you, if you girls did this when you were um, just using makeup, but, but if you, used, you put your lip prints on something when you had to make up just to see your lip outline. Well, these girls were doing it in the restroom on the mirror. And so, you know, the, 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 they were having, there were lip prints all over the mirror. Now, the principal was a female and she uh, devised a little strategy to deal with this. She knew better than to go into this big, long, moralistic thing. You know, you girls ought to respect the property of the school. You know, she didn't do that. She just gathered this gang in, and uh, and it was just her and the gang and the custodian. And uh, and and she said, "Now, girls, I'm not going to give you a big, long uh, lecture about stuff. 
uh, and I'm not going to take your lip, lip prints over off here and f- try to figure out who this was. I, I just want you girls to know how difficult it is to clean these lip prints off this mirror. And he, she turned to the custodian. She said, Mr. Custodian, why don't you show these girls what you have to do every night to clean these, these lip prints off this mirror? And he took this big, long brush, dipped it in the toilet, and brushed the lip prints. <laughs> Problem solved. (laughs) See, for there to be real change, it doesn't always have to come at an intellectual and moral. It's just very practical, very practical. And that's what God was doing here. Now, as this story, as this, this whole other beginning starts, read on with me in the next few verses, and you'll find something very distinctive. It says in verse 28, and coming in, this is Gabriel coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, those of you who grew up with a Catholic family, as I did, you will will recognize this right away as the the first line of Hail Mary. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Um, I'm going to come back to that in just a second because there's there's a distinction that I want to make here. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. I want to talk uh, in subsequent messages about Mary, how sharp, sharp she was. I I really admire this girl. Um, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Remember that phrase. I'll come back to that too. And Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. By the way, the name Jesus was also very common back then. Yeshua. Uh, We get the name Joshua from it. It was very common back then. As a matter of fact, in Hispanic culture, you still see a lot of kids named Jesus. And it was just that common back then. And that's very much the point. I want to make this point in in a contrast to our brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic Church and I want to make it in a way that, that is not at all disrespectful because you can disagree without being disrespectful. You can disagree without being disagreeable. That's part of uh, spiritual maturity. But, but there is a contrast uh, between the way uh, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters have taken the role of Mary and the way that the Protestants have. And there's a very good reason for that. Um, and I want, to sh- I want to show you the difference. Um, as, as I said, many of us grew up in a Roman Catholic family, and, and, and there is the veneration of Mary. Because it is almost a universal uh, trait to venerate those who have contributed a significant thing to the community, uh, a significant role in the benefit of others. Um, and, and that's exactly what has happened. In the, in, in, in the, in the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, um, there is an assumption that God could never have come from just a regular person. There is an assumption, therefore, that Mary, in the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, for example, Mary was born herself under miraculous circumstances. God could never, in their, in their understanding, have issued from a sinner. Um, um, and therefore, uh, Mary lived a very uh, a sinless life. 
Um, there is the doctrine of perpetual virginity. Uh, that when it mentions Jesus' brothers and sisters in the uh, Bible, uh, the Roman Catholics say that's not really brothers and sisters, that's cousins, um, um, because Mary never had intercourse. She was, she was always a virgin. And then there is, of course, the assumption uh, into heaven there is the, uh, there is the role then of, of uh, co-redemptrix, that is, that Mary is a co-redeemer with Christ. Now, the Roman Catholics never say she's of divine uh, state, but she is venerated enough to be a, a vessel of redemption with Jesus. And the, the word is mediatrix. That is, she is the mediator of all grace to us. Now, <clears throat> let me show you how we contrast with that. Again, with, you know, being totally respectful. Um, but why we think... Um, differently than that. To us, the point is very much that the miracle of the incarnation was that God used usual stuff. The point is not lost on us that he came not to Jerusalem but to Nazareth. It is not lost on us that he didn't come through royal lineage, uh, that he didn't come through a queen, but that he came through a common girl who was a teenager. So therefore, our point is that the miracle of this is not only that he used Mary in a special way, but watch this, that he can use us all in a special way. As common and as sinful as we are, he can use us to bless others. He can use us as a venue to come into the world. Now, let me show you biblically a very good reason to believe that this grace is not confined to Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. If you will read in that verse 28, that word, hail, favored one, that's full of grace. The, the word in Greek is keratao. There's only two places in the entire Bible that that word is used, keratao. Let me show you the other place. If you will turn to Ephesians chapter 1, you can read it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. Let me give you a running start, though, to understand the full context of this. Let's start with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now let me ask you, who is us? Everybody whose Lord is Jesus Christ. That's the use here. Read verse 4. And just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Okay. Who was chosen before the foundation of the world? We were. Not just Mary. Us. Read on. Just before he chose us, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And Jesus Christ, who is sinless, not just Mary, but us, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace. Now watch this. Here, here comes the word which he freely bestowed on us. 
Keratao. Hail, Christians, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Do you understand how the Bible, without taking anything from the unique and special role that Mary played in the coming of Christ into this world, the Bible gives us all that same uh, attribution of that same special grace. And in our own unique way, a role of bringing Christ into the world. That's very important to understand. Now, how does God do that? Well, by the way, before I get off that, just so that you know we're not... uh, I want to also tell you this inkling is not just in Roman Catholics. It's with Protestants also. Protestants venerate in a functional way what the Roman Catholic Church does in an encyclical doctrine. Um, I, I am associated with my framework is, is Reformed theology. And I want to tell you, there are people in Reformed theology who have venerated John Calvin to the point that if it doesn't say it in John Calvin, it's not accurate theology. In other words, they have made him the mediator of grace and truth because that's the only person they'll refer to. They've done in a functional way what the Roman Catholics did with Mary. There are people with, in, in the Protestant section, in the, in the Protestant part of the family, that say, uh, come from a charismatic background. And they say, you know, if you haven't spoken in tongues, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. And they have venerated that experience to the place where it is a mediator with Christ of the filling of the Spirit, the experience itself. There are people among us who say, you know, if it doesn't come from my local church, eh, I ain't hearing it because I don't trust nobody out there. And what they've done is they've confined their understanding of Christianity, their reference point of Christianity, to their local church. They have venerated the local church way beyond wherever it was meant to be in the body. So before we get too honked off at other parts of the body, we need to take a look at ourselves. It's a universal human trait. Okay, now let me go on from there. How does God then let us be filled with grace, give us this overwhelming blessing, so that we might be used of His coming into the world beyond what we could ever ask or think. I'll tell you how He does it. He does it in the same way that He did with Mary, only not with a baby, but with a dream, with an idea, with an inkling. You will conceive, the Bible says. You will conceive. God will do something in you. You know, when you have a religion, you try to conform to outside standards. But when you have a relationship, there's something going on inside. There's something inside that's responding. And that's exactly what was happening in Mary in a physical way and what happens in us in a spiritual way. God plants a dream. And it is so important for us to understand that He works with an inside job. It says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. There, I heard a story one time about how important it is to never give up the dreams that God has put in you. To, to never give up the, the, the desire um, for, for the fruition of your dreams. There was a, there was a young man, this true story, Monty Roberts was his name. When he was in fourth grade, 
he had a very grumpy fourth grade teacher. I, I had one of those too in fourth grade. I guess fourth grade is a pretty tough age, age to teach. And, uh, but she was very grumpy, very realistic. You know, it felt like it was her job to train those kids into the way the world was. Now, Monty grew up in a very poor background. His, he, his family was itinerant workers. And, uh, um, and, but he had big dreams. And he just, he just, since he could remember, he wanted to own a ranch, a horse ranch. You know, and, and, and so he just dreamed of it all the time. And one time in this class, she asked the students to write essays as to what their future would be like. Well, he couldn't wait to write his. And I mean, he sat down and he wrote this essay, you know, and he said, someday I'm going to have a 200-acre ranch and it's going to have a huge ranch house on it. And he even, he even drew, I mean, in the midst of his writing, he drew this house and he said, the living room is going to be here and the family room is going to be here and going to have bedrooms over here. And, and, and on this back, in this back 40, we're going to have a building like that. And he drew it all out. And he worked hours on this thing. <coughs> well, he took it in. Handed it in. I mean, that was his life. Got it back the next day. And on the top of the paper was this huge red F with a note that said, see me after class. Well, he went up after class. He was crushed. This, this teacher looked at him and said, Monty, you have no idea what it means to run a 200-acre ranch. You have no idea what it takes to buy one for crying out Look at yourself. You come from a poor family. Your, your people are itinerant workers, for crying out loud. Part of my job is to make you get real about life. You can't do this. Then she handed it back to him. She said, look, if you want to go and revise this paper into something a little bit more realistic, I'll reconsider your grade. Well, he took the paper. Of course, he was crushed. He'd never, he'd never thought before he couldn't do it. it never occurred to him. And he went back home that night, and he just kept reading through it, kept wondering if he could change it. Next day, he came in, and he walked to the front of that room, and he put that paper on her desk. And he said, I couldn't change a thing in here. I'm turning it in just like it was. You keep your F. I'm going to keep my dream. Would you like to know where Monty Roberts lives today? <laughs> 200 acre ranch. 4,000 square foot house. And over the mantle, there is a framed essay <laughs> that he wrote when he was in fourth grade. God does inside jobs. And when he gives you an inkling of how you can bless others, when he gives you an inkling of what you can give to the world. He makes that come to fruition. It's not through your effort. It's through your cooperation. But it's through what he has planned to do in your life. Now, there's another part of this verse that we need to look at very closely. Because the other message besides, he's going to use us as a venue to bless the world, is that blessings, many, many blessings, 
I'd venture to say most of God's blessings don't come full grown. Do you realize the shape that the world is, was in by now? I mean, they needed a Savior bad. And they need one right now. And they probably needed one riding in on this horse and, and, and being the immediate relief of their enslavement from Rome and their, and, their, and their pain of living in poverty. And God sent an embryo. They needed a Savior, and God sent a baby. They needed an immediate solution, and God sent something that needed care and nurturance itself. Some of you are sitting here, and you're looking at God and saying, Anytime now. Anytime. Come on. I want immediate solutions. And God's saying, I sent you your solution. It just didn't full grown yet. I sent you your solution, but you're going to have to nurture it. You're going to have to develop it. You're going to have to care for it. Because part of the overwhelming blessing of God is that the help He sends does not overwhelm us. It's simply available to us. But if we avail ourselves of it, like this baby Jesus, nothing will stop it eventually. The point that the Christmas story gives to us is that God's favor many times is only apparent eventually. Do you realize <laughs> the angel Gabriel, when she came to Mary, said, Hail, O favored one. And then he said it again, for you are favored of God. Let me ask you a question. How? How is a young teenage girl who isn't even married and all of a sudden pregnant, how is she favored of God? She wasn't old enough to think about kids for crying out loud. And she, she's having a baby. She was shamed by everybody in that town. She was pregnant out of wedlock. How was she favored of God? She didn't know anything about raising kids. I remember being a first-time parent. I remember being a third-time parent. You still don't know anything about raising kids. And here she was, having to raise God. <laughs> you think you've got a problem raising kids? <laughs> How do you raise God? When that boy grew up and he went into the ministry, person after person after person would come to her and say, Mary, your son is a blasphemer. How was she favored of God? And one day she stood and watched her son die of suffocation. How was she favored of God? The word is, Eventually. The favor was there all along, but she never could grasp it until the end of the story. 
Your solution is in your life now. Or it is on its way. God isn't wondering about what to do. But it may be a while before you see it. You are favored of God. And it may be that eventually you'll see it. But there's one more piece of this that that is really important for us to understand. Because in the end, it really isn't about Mary at all. Read these last verses with me. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And then Gabriel goes to the real focus of the story. And he will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. By the way, Jacob encompassed all the twelve tribes of Israel. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. When it comes right down to it, the solutions that we need for our lives, although God will take his time because he's not in the business of solutions, he's in the business of people. And he's not in the, he's not in the business of pain relief, he's in the business of building faith and dependence on him so that someday we can glorify him in a deeper and richer sense. But when it comes right down to it, Our story is not really the focus of history, is it? The Savior is the focus of history. And when we learn that, it seems to be enough for all the rest of our life. The more intimate and personal the inhabitation of God, the higher and more vast His glory is adequate for all of those down and dirty things we got to go through. I heard a story once a long time ago. I read this story actually from this preacher. He had a good friend of his go in the nursing home. He had pastored this woman for years. For years, this woman had been a Sunday school teacher in his church. And she loved those kids But what she loved even more than the kids was reciting God's word to them. She loved God's word and she had had committed vast amounts of God's word to, to memory and to heart. She loved to recite the scripture. And whenever this preacher would go to the nursing home, she would bless him just by reciting God's scripture to him. And he'd go away so much stronger than when he went in, taking away so much more than he had brought to her. I know that feeling. But eventually, the woman's mind began to fail. I don't know whether it was old age or Alzheimer's, but she could remember less and less. And eventually, all of the vast amounts of Scripture she had memorized had gone by the way. And it all came down to this one verse in Second. Timothy, chapter 1, verse 12. This was it. 
And every time the pastor would come, she would recite this verse. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I, have con- I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And every time the preacher would come, every week, he'd come in. That's all, that's all she could say. It was just that one verse. And eventually, her mind failed even more. And when he would come, she would simply say, I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. And then eventually it failed even more. And she could only whisper a few words, what I have entrusted to him. What I have entrusted to him. And in the last days of her life, she only had the mind and the strength to utter one word. Him. Again and again, she would whisper, Him. She had forgotten the whole Bible. She had remembered the whole Bible. It's all about Him. God's pace in our lives may seem so slow and so unhurried. It may seem like the, the progress in our life comes like a, a stutter step down the aisle, waiting so much just to be married. It may seem so delayed, but it's not about our timing nor about our need. It's about what he will accomplish beyond what we could ever ask or think through our lives. It's about the glory that he will receive because he was about healing instead of pain relief. It's about him. Pray with me. God, thank you that you come so present in our lives, so present in ordinary circumstances, so much to us who sin like everyone else, that you can use us for the blessing of the world, to be gracious to others. Thank you that you do not give us the solution as plain as simple as we want, but your solution is one that will build our faith and will ultimately result in so much of a deeper and richer glory for you that we cannot fathom that right now. Glory to you, dear Jesus. Glory to you.